So I'm going to open it up for questions, and if, if and when we run out of questions, we're going to talk about Thirtle's theory of psalm titles. Isn't that going to be fun? But questions, questions. Mitchell's excited. Um, any questions? And a mic microphone. Okay. Okay. Let's do. Th- okay, we'll start with Thirtle. That's fine. Now, Pastor Daniel is the one who first lightened me into this. I remember hearing it mentioned in OTI, Old Testament Introduction. Daniel did his um, THM dissertation on this. Um, one of the things in the Psalms, and one of the reasons why um, that a lot of the scholarship do not believe the Psalm titles are inspired, if you read a lot of the more technical and critical commentaries on the, on the Psalms, they'll frequently just disregard the psalm titles. Part of the reason for that is that many of the terms in them we don't know, we can't make much sense of. Okay, even this morning I had to say that a mitkam is our best guess. There's a couple of competing theories. Some people think it means atonement psalm, but in the six, there's only six psalms that have that in its title. It doesn't seem to fit very well. Um, is it musical notation? Is it like a type of melody? What is it? And so because of, and there's other words that show up in the psalm titles, a shigion or you know, um, things that a lot of people don't see much useful information in it. Although the psalm titles exist in our earliest copies, we simply don't have Hebrew manuscripts that lack the psalm titles. We don't have them. It's there. Um, Another reason is because some of the Greek translations will alter or add psalm titles, and for, for that reason, they're frequently used, viewed as secondary. If they are authentic, they are written later, is what many people think. I, I disregard all of that, but that's common view. Well, Thirtle, guy in, I think, the 20s, um, made an observation. If you turn to, to um, Habakkuk, he made an observation in Habakkuk that would suggest that we have been reading many of the psalm titles incorrectly, Okay. So again, in the Hebrew text, there is no Psalm 1, Psalm 2, Psalm 3. There's an unbroken narrative. There's not narrative, it's an unbroken text. And so we have to figure out where the divisions take place. And frequently, the Psalm titles are a great way of doing it. Because when you get to of David, you, you got a new Psalm. You know you've got a new Psalm. But third all, based upon, let me get to Habakkuk myself. I need to. It's my prophet Zechariah. Hold on. That's right. Um, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, chapter 3. In Habakkuk, chapter 3, we have an entire psalm. In fact, chapter 3 is an entire psalm. But what's interesting is, again, adding support to the fact that the psalm titles are genuine. Habakkuk psalm has a title. It also has a postscript doesn't it? So you read in verse 1, the prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. And then you read in verse 19, to the choir master with stringed instruments. It's interesting. Where does the musical notation take place? At the end of the psalm, not the beginning. So Thirtle, noticing that, and then doing some more work, said, hey, maybe, maybe part of the reason why we are having a difficult time understanding what some of these terms mean is because we've been assigning it incorrectly. So according to Thirtle's theory, and I, and I tend to hold the Thirtle's theory, I, I think he's onto something. 
when you get to a psalm title, if it begins with musical notation to the choir master or according to the terebinths of the far-off dove, what you're really reading is the end of the previous psalm. And then when you get to authorship or occasion of writing a mitcom of David, now you're actually dealing with the beginning of the psalm. Does that make sense? And again, the Hebrew text has no numbering. We have to guess, we have to determine when one psalm ends and another begins. In fact, the next psalm I'm going to do, 9 and 10, I'm going to suggest you as one psalm. Psalm 9 and 10 has neither, 10, has neither the postscript or the prefix. And for reasons that I'll get into next week, I, I think it probably is almost like, almost certainly, well, here's the reason. The two of them form an acrostic. It's, it's not a complete acrostic. It's not every letter of the Hebrew alphabet. But it's kind of like Psalm 9's got like A, B, C, D, and then Psalm 10's like X, Y, Z. And, and um, so, and we've got texts where they do appear as one psalm in them. And so I think it very likely Psalm 9 and 10 are one psalm. But if you turn to the 40s, Psalm, I'll give you an example where this can help shed some light on things. Um, psalm 40, 40 what? I got it underlined, so let me find it. 45, Psalm 45. So, according to Thirtle's theory, Psalm 45 does not begin to the choir master according to the lilies. It begins a masculine of the sons of Korah love song. That makes sense? So, the musical notation, according to Thirtle's theory, would really be the end of 44. That also means the musical notation at the beginning of 46 is really the end of a 45. To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alma'oth, a song. And so here's an example where I think this kind of makes some sense. In Psalm 45, we've got a royal wedding. Okay, let's, let's read Psalm 45. Uh, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in the splendor, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The people fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloe and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people in your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. And the people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts and the riches of people. Of the people, all glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold and many colored robes. She is led to the king with her virgin companions, following behind her with joy and gladness. They are led among along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your father shall be your sons, and you will make them princes in all the earth. It will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Okay, so you see the picture of this grandiose royal wedding, right? What's interesting is you read Alma'oth in, in chapter 46, and the ESV simply has this note, 
probably a musical or liturgical term, which is their way of saying we haven't got a sausage of an idea what that means. <laughs> it's interesting because that word alma oath occurs nearly identically in a different form in verse 14. It's the word for virgin. It's the plural form for the word virgin. It's what you see in verse 14. In many colored robes, she is led to the king with her virgin companions. So could it be that the inscription at the end of 45 is saying, this is a song we sent at the royal wedding by that virgin choir? Wouldn't Wouldn't that fit? Wouldn't that fit well? And so it's not like it's radically changing the meaning of Psalm 45, but it's at least one instance where applying Thirtle's theory actually helps make sense of some of the terms. I'll give you a couple other examples. Just, and I haven't done a huge amount of detailed study on this. Daniel's the person to talk to. Um, so let's go to... Hold on. Let me find the next one I got here. Yeah, 55. Okay. Well, actually, go to the beginning of 56. So Psalm 56 begins, the choir master, and then the according to is probably the melody, um, the melody that you're playing this to, according to the dove of the far-off terebinths. Except Psalm 56 doesn't mention doves. But guess what Psalm does? 55. 55 mentions doves. Verse 6. Oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far. I would lodge in the wilderness. Again, that doesn't absolutely prove it conclusively, but you start to see as things making more sense and lining up. And so um, that's Thirtle's theory of psalm tales. And as I read psalms in our series on psalms on Sunday mornings, I will be applying it as I read it. So at least for those of you in here who wonder why I start partway through a psalm title and be go partway into the next psalm, that's why. Questions about that as it applies? Microphone. T-H-U-R-T-L-E. Thirtle. Thirtle. And he wrote this, and it's not that anybody, like, countered it or or demolished it. Just no one really interacted with it. And so I remember in our OTI class, which stands for Old Testament Introduction, Dr. Barrick would, gave us a list of things for research papers saying, these are things people, we need more research on. These are topics we need more. And one of them was Thirtle. And Daniel heard that, and he, he uh, did his work on it. In fact, most of his dissertation, he has a copy of it in his office, the first two or three chapters of his dissertation had to defend the authenticity of the titles themselves. What's, what's the use is it discussing Thirtle's theory if the titles are throwaways? So he actually did a lot of work on the, the authenticity and the original nature of the titles themselves and then argues Thirtle's theory. Um, so again, nothing that's radically changing things, but it's interesting. I think it's interesting. And it will partly explain what you'll be seeing me do in the coming weeks and months. And when people look at me quizzically when I... Because I'm not going to explain this in a message. Um, and when I, when I read the next psalm that we do and I, you know begin partway through the psalm title, you'll know why, and you'll be going, aha, turtle, that's turtle. Like a turtle, but it's a turtle. Yeah, exactly. Okay, any other questions about turtle's theory of psalm titles? Anybody? Bueller. Bueller. So, so getting back to the divisions of psalms, there are a couple of psalms that I think really are one psalm. And really, you can only argue that where there isn't a psalm title, postscript, or a prescript. So if you like, for, like when I taught through 42 and 43, I argued there are one psalm, almost certainly. Psalm 42 and 43 are one psalm. Because again, the Hebrew text has no numbering. 
And so hundreds and hundreds of years later, along come English speakers, maybe not even English speakers, maybe Latin speakers, um, num- numbering the Psalms. So if we look at 42 and 43. Psalm 42 and 43 actually have a verse chorus formula, kind of similar to our modern day pop songs where you'll have a verse and a chorus. Uh, and so you'll see it. There's a lament. He's pouring out a complaint, and then he speaks to himself. So as the deer pants... For, so according to Thirtle, we'd start with a masculine of the sons of Korah and consider to the choir master really the end of 41. That would be a, the, applying Thirtle's theory. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. And the glad, with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Then we get to the chorus. Why are you down, cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation, and my God. And what you see is, Another lament, and then pick it up in verse 11. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Word for word. And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Then there's no liturgical notation, nor any psalm introduction. It's an unbroken text right into what in my Bible says Psalm 43. Except what do we see? Another pouring out of complaint with some similar imagery. Look at look at 42.9 verses 43.2. 42.9. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? 43.2. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? And then look down at verse 5 of 43. It ends with the exact same chorus. Why are you cast down on my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So for those reasons, just about every um, commentator and, and, and study of the student of the Psalms has concluded, and it's pretty much accepted, that 42 and 43 are one psalm. The only reason our modern Bibles don't update that is because that would offset the numbering and be just craziness. <laughs> No, it would. I mean, if, and so there's, there's some necessity of modern translations to keep Psalm 50, Psalm 50, and not some people at Psalm 49 and some people at Psalm 50. So, um, but almost certainly it's one psalm. It just makes sense. If it's not one psalm, it's the sequel. You know, it's, it's like part two, right? 42B, right. Um, so when I taught it, I taught it as one psalm. Well, I'm going to suggest that Psalm 9 and 10, the same thing's going on um, next week. And we'll take two weeks to do Psalm 9. We'll do Psalm 9, we'll do Psalm 10. But I think very likely they're, they're one psalm. And there's, a, there's not a ton of examples like that, but there are a few. Yes? Microphone. So 42, it says book two. Is that just a different scroll? No, oh, that's a great question. This is, though, this is good stuff. We'll talk about the structure of the psalms. So the psalms are broken up into five books, very similar to the five books of Moses. In fact, it's probably not a coincidence. And those divisions um, are in the text. Now, book one is not in the text. But what you do have, in fact, here are the five books. Let me go back to the beginning of Psalms. I got them written in in my margin here, what they are. Uh, The five books of the Psalms, 
And not only are there five books, but the five books themselves thematically would appear to follow Israel's history from entering into the land, the Davidic kinship to Solomon, to the division of the kingdom, to the exile in Babylon, to the return. Um, a guy named Fictato has got a really interesting book tracking that. But the, the five books of the Psalms, book one, Psalms 1 to 41, book 2, 42 to 72, book 3, 78 to 89, book 4, 90 to 106, and book 5, 107 to 150. And there are textual markers to, to mark the division. And what you're going to see is the double amen. And you'll, you'll see. Let's take a look at them. So we go to the first one. Let's go to the end of Psalm uh, 41, which is where we are right now. And at the end of Psalm 41, we have verse 13. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. There's that double amen, right? Now go to Psalm uh, 72. Verse 18, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. There's that double amen formula. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Clear division. Because remember, the Psalms are compiled multiple times. There's multiple compilations as people gather the existing Psalms, put them in a group, and then in Israel's history, more Psalms get written, and they're compiled again and again. And we've got Psalms written after return from Babylon. So they, they go all the way from a Psalm of Moses. Psalm 90 was penned by Moses. It's probably the oldest Psalm in the Psalter. All the way up to post-exilic Psalms after the return from Babylon. So the Psalms are written over hundreds of years. And there are these compilations that appear. So then we go to uh, Psalm, uh, what is it, 106? No, 89. Psalm 89. And I'll pause here. I want to look at some of Psalm 89. I, I taught Psalm 89 um, a number of years ago. Psalm 89, if, if, remember I was saying the three books seem to follow Israel's history. This is, the, this is the, the Babylonian captivity. This is the dissolution of the kingdom. Psalm 89 is a, a long psalm, but it has a pretty straightforward formula a celebration of God's promises to David, and then complete and total bewilderment at their apparent being, they're apparently being broken. That's Psalm 89. And there's really no resolution. It's here's what you said and promised, and it is wonderful, and I rejoice in it, and here's what I see happening in front of my eyes, and I don't get it. The end. That is Psalm, we'll read Psalm 89. And so, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever with my mouth, I'll make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever in the heavens. You will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build up your throne for all generations, Salah. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can compare to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. 
O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your, faith, with your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging sea when its waves rise. You stilled them and crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth is also yours. The world and all that is in it, you've founded them. The north and the south, you've created them. Tabor and Hermon, joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand, high your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exult in your name all the day, and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor, our horn is exalted, for our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. Of old, you spoke in a vision to your godly ones and said, I have granted help to the one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant. With holy oil, I've anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm shall also strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him. And in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. So there is redundant, resounding celebration of God's covenant with David, right? It's, it's, it's over the top. It's not restrained. It is vocal and exuberant. And then it turns on a dime um, in verse 38. So let's keep going. If his children, he's still, he, here he's reciting. I mean, if, we, if you've been here in Luke, even last week we looked at Jesus' kingship. We read the Davidic covenants in 2 Samuel 7. These are almost word-for-word word citations of what God says to David. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rods and the iniquity with stripes, but I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as the sun before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness to the sky. So not only does he recount God's covenant with David, he counts his I will not break it-ness of it, right? But now, you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruin. All who pass by plunder him. He has become a scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You've also turned back the edge of his sword. You have not made him stand in the battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame, Salah. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? What, who can deliver his soul from the power of Shalol, Salah? 
Lord, where is your steadfast love of old by which in your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear all in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever and ever, forever. Amen and amen. There's no resolution. He doesn't get it. He celebrates what God did for David. This is what God said, and it's wonderful, and it's awesome, and it's wondrous. And it appears that you've broken every one of your promises, and I don't get it help. The end. That is Psalm 89. By the way, I find great encouragement in that, because it means we don't necessarily have to understand what God is up to. We can be completely vexed. The disciples, surely. This is the Messiah. The Messiah is being crucified. I don't get it. Right? I mean, we get it this side of the cross. It's completely fine. As long as you can do the first half of Psalm 89, you can be as discouraged as the second half. You need to still be able to rejoice in what God is. I have no idea how this fits together. Because here's what God said, and it's wonderful. And here's what I'm seeing happening. That's fine. He said he causes all things to work together for good for those that love him. As I get the cancer diagnosis. And I don't get it. Right? But as long as you don't let go of the first half, you can, you can cry out to God the second half. And that ends the, the, the third book of the Psalms. Which would appear to track... By the way, if you're tracking the, the Israel's history motif, it seems that the Psalms that begin and end the books, the seams of the five books of Psalms, is where most of that gets carried. Those seem to be most significant Psalms. Which is why I think Psalm 90's introduction is very significant, Right? Moses only writes one psalm on the Psalter. Moses is only mentioned five times in the Psalter. Four of the five times that Moses is mentioned in the Psalms is in the very short, this next book, book four of the Psalms. And I think part of the logic of the whoever um, ordered, compiled the Psalms is this. How do you resolve the tension of these promises of God of an everlasting covenant and kingdom when you're in Babylon? Well, part of the way you do that is you remember that God was faithful even before there was a gift of land. Look how Psalm 90 begins. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Only Psalm in the Psalter. Moses wrote other songs. They're in Deuteronomy and Exodus. But only Psalm in the Psalter penned by Moses is here. Lord, you have been our dwelling place. I mean, think of the context as you read this off the land. Lord, you have been our dwelling place. In all generations, before the mountains are brought forth or ever had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. I think it's kind of reminding Israel, hey, Israel, before there was ever a land that God brought you to, he was your God. He was your habitation. He was faithful then, and he can be faithful now. I think that's part of the logic. Anyway, so then if you move on to the last seam in the Psalms, um, which will be Psalm, else I'm sure you wrote it down. So what Psalm is I got to go back to the beginning. One, yeah, so go to the end of 106, exactly. Um, Psalm 106. And Psalm 106 would appear to track with the end of the exile. Look at, I told you some of these Psalms are in the exile. Look at 46, verse seven, 106, verse 7. Save us, O Lord our God. Gather us from among the nations. So this is written in exile. That we may give thanks to your holy name and glory and your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say amen and amen. Praise, say amen. Praise the Lord. 
So there's a very um, formulaic coda that occurs at the end of each of the books. And then the, the, the overwhelming emphasis of, of the last uh, 43 Psalms are in praise and God's coming kingdom and judgment. Ultimately, the, I think the answer is something like the, the Babylonian captivity can be made sense of in light of God's coming judgment and kingdom. That, that's where it gets resolved, I think. Now, to demonstrate the, the, the fact that these psalm titles and these codas are, in fact, part of the text, let me show you something. Because um, some people have argued, oh, that those code, just like the psalm titles are, are added later and throw away, so are those endings of the books, right? Um, so that's just some later edition by an editor. No, I don't think so. That won't fly. Go to First Chronicles 16. All the internal evidence, all the internal evidence in the scripture is consistent with and, and, and treats the titles and th- those types of things as absolutely valid parts of the text. Um, so First Chronicles 16. Which, by the way, part of what that means is when you're reciting a psalm or reading a psalm or you're memorizing a verse one in Awana, add in the psalm title. Come on. Um, First Chronicles 16, and look at verse 36. We've got a long psalm here, David's song of thankfulness, right? Look at verse 16 that ends David's song. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Huh. So even that coda at the end of the, uh, the books of the Psalms is, is elsewhere. It's cited. It's not some later development or edition. So th- those are some of the structural markings around the book of Psalms as it's organized. The first two books of Psalms are the most heavily Davidic, although some of David's Psalms do show up elsewhere. But the heaviest concentration of them are, are in the first um, 70, what, 71 Psalms? Anyway. Um, any other questions about just Psalms and Pinkham? Yes, Jer- yes, Jeremy. Wait for the microphone. Seven people are waiting breathlessly, even as I speak. So this isn't really intended to be a gotcha moment, but at the end of book one, so this is in chapter 41 to the beginning of chapter 42, the song title at the beginning of 42 says, to the choir master such and such, isn't, according to Thirtle, wouldn't that end 41? And if that was the case, wouldn't it come before the separation between book one and book two? No, because we're not saying the codas are separate songs. This this coda is not its own psalm or piece. So it is rightly part of the end of that song, just as the coda at the end of uh, 1 Chronicles, the David psalm there, is part of that song. So really, where the ESV simply puts book two is wrong. It should be after to the choir master. That, that would be third state. No, no problem there. Because the coda is part of that psalm. It's not as though really there's 154 psalms, because really you've got these little tiny one-verse praises that are separate. No, the, the compilers in God's providence, there were four psalms that had these similar endings, and they were chosen as fitting markers at the end of the books. But that said... I just put to the choir master right with it as well. There is no book one in the Hebrew. There's simply, when, when 
were trying to make divisions in the salt. They were looking for textual markers, markers in the text itself that indicate divisions. And so, rightly, when they found these four very similar codas, okay, these are major divisions, right? Um, but, yeah, there'd be no problem applying Thirdle and just putting that on as well. No problem at all. I, I misunderstood. I thought you said that, like, the, the book one, book two, whatever was in the text as well. The book is in the text only insofar as the coda is there. We're seeing literary structure of a very similar ending, Amen and Amen, which, which brings to some sort of closure. But there is no then book two in the Hebrew text. There's simply literary markers for very similar endings, Amen and Amen. And even the second one, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended, Amen and Amen, right? So there are these four coming to conclusion marks, which look like, you know, it'd be like reading a manuscript today and looking, that looks like the end of a chapter. You know, something like that. That's what we've got. Though there is no, I, I misspoke or you misheard me. One of the, there's been miscommunication. What indicates the books is in the text, but there is no book one. That's not in the text. There are those four terminations. There's four, I, I've used the term codas, but there's four, um, the double amen closing motif that indicates some sort of sectional closure, especially the second one with the sons of the psalm. The, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended, even though there's more Davidic psalms. That come later, but that compiler um, that, that he had all the songs by David he knew of there, and apparently others were discovered or others, you know, were added in. So, no, Does that make more sense. Yeah. Okay. No. Good question. I do have one other thing yes. though um, about today's oh okay message, and yeah. this is something I'm sort of embarrassed to ask this, but Sheol. Oh. Can you give a couple minutes on yeah. what what in the world we're talking about? <laughs> sure thing. Hmm. Sheol is only mentioned, um, well, I have it written down here, actually. Hold on. Sheol is only mentioned 16 times in the Psalms. Um, this is the first, not the first, this is the third time it's mentioned. So if you, uh, let me pause. Actually, let me pause with the Sheol question. Any other questions about the structure of the Psalms? I just want to bring that section to a close because I think we're at a good closing. Okay, Bob, and then we'll pick up on Sheol. Bob has a question. Um, just so that we can have some linear notion here to clarify are who decided that psalm one and psalm two and psalm three go in that order some compiler possibly the person who wrote chronicles because it covers the return from the uh babylon as well some post-exilic the psalms in its final state was arranged by some post-exilic compiler and i would say inspired compiler in fact one of the questions i've wrestled with the most is the inf- there is clearly information and intentionality in the arrangement of the Psalms. That's undeniable, I think. Ought we to ascribe that intentionality to God and, and grant it is an inspired intentionality? Or is it purely these are the thoughts of the compiler? I tend to think, and I, and I lean towards pretty heavily, that the inspired nature of the compilation. Um, I mean, basically, you read just what any commentary on the Psalms, and they're going to make a big deal out of the first two Psalms, celebrating the way of wisdom and the coming Messiah and his kingdom, which are the two dominant themes in the Psalms. The, the, the path of the righteous, the path of the wicked, the, the two paths, very Jewish way of thinking, Psalm 1. And then Psalm 2, coming Messiah, king, and son, right? I mean, so right out of the gate, boom. But if Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 could just as easily have been Psalm 97 and Psalm 83... Is it valid to make such a big deal of their placement? Only if their placement is divinely intentioned as well. I think it is. Um, it's, it's a difficult topic 
to, to get absolutely dogmatic on, but I think it is. But to answer your question, some post-exilic uh, scribe put it in its final state. And there were previous states as well. It wasn't like there was just one compilation. So the final state is post-exilic, at least. That wouldn't yeah. be someone like Ezra? Or... Possibly Ezra, yeah. Yeah, possibly Ezra. We, we don't know, but certainly Ezra is a candidate, absolutely. Any other questions about the arrangement, the makeup of the Book of Psalms? Oh, Sarah. So the way they're arranged, you said that it kind of goes with the history of Israel. Mm -hmm. Is that chronological, you think? Yeah. So the last psalm of, uh, the, in, the, in the second book, if you look at, would appear to be the handoff to Solomon. So if you look at uh, Psalm 40... Its title is, no, not 40. Is it 40? No, 41. No, of David. No, sorry, book two, book two, not book one. Book two, that's going to be 70. Is it for what? Book two is the end of book two, because the first two books are David. So the end of, the end of book two is going to be what? 77. 77. There we go. Yeah. 77? That's not right. 72. That's right. Okay. 72. There we go. Thank you. And the title of Psalm 2 is of Solomon. So this would see the move and the close of the book. And given how 72 ends with verse 20, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are at an end. This would be the movement from David to Solomon in Israel's history. And of course, Solomon's or things start to go down. Well, they reach their apex and they very quickly go downhill. Um, Solomon's early reign is, is excellent. The Queen of Sheba comes. He's wiser. He's richer. He's certainly more married than anybody I've ever heard of. Um, but then he begins to go after other gods. And then his son, Jeroboam, is a punk. And under him, the kingdom is ripped in two. You have a divided kingdom. And, and then the northern kingdom peters out and is gobbled up by Shalmaneser. And then the southern kingdom is gobbled up by Nebuchadnezzar. And we're in exile. Uh, and I think that's where we end up at the end of uh, book um, book three. Right? I think it's a quick movement. Book three is from Solomon to exile because it ends with, these are your promises to David, and, and I see David's throne in, in ashes. You know, I don't get it. And then book four begins with the Psalm of Moses tracking it through. Um, if you're interested, I can, photo, I can copy a chapter, a chapter from Fictato's book. He tracks through it and does, I think, a pretty decent job of that. And I'm leaning pretty heavily on that. But, I mean, it sure seems like there's something to that. Primarily when you look at the seam psalms, the psalms that begin and end books. That's where most of it seems to sharply come up. But I have no idea. If you want to follow me after this, I'll show you. You can take a snap a photo on your iPhone and... Be good. Any other questions? Okay. So now we'll look at Sheol, if we're good. We'll look at Sheol. In the coming weeks, we can talk about the structure of the book of Psalms. But um, So Sheol. Let's look at its first occurrence in um, Psalm 6. Let's go to Psalm 6. <sighs> uh, 
and it's in verse 5. For in death there is no remembrance of you in Sheol who will give you praise. Sheol appears to be, Jeremy, um, simply the land and the domain of the dead, irrespective of whether they're righteous or not. As Revelation progresses, like even here's a, a clear example, right? And these, these things are rough, to, are rough to wrestle with, tough to wrestle with, no, rough to wrestle with, good night. Uh, tough to wrestle with is that God's revelation is, is progressive. And it, certain Psalms seem to indicate a lack of knowledge or clarity about exactly what happens in the realm of the dead. Certain Psalms, like right here, seem to suggest a, a certain lack or ignorance of what comes next. So, so the whole logic here is, is a very difficult for us to read. Psalm is right. Um, look at verse four. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death, there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? We say, well, in heaven we would. But if at this point, um, David, probably earlier in his life, only knows there's a, there's a place that dead souls go to when they die. There's a realm, there's a domain. And he is apparently unaware at this point in his life of that. So there's no misinformation. There's no error. There's ignorance. That much of the plot line hasn't yet been revealed. David can later make, like we even saw today, he's confident his body will be restored. It won't be rotted. But as he's even learning about these things. So Sheol is kind of the realm of the dead, irrespective it's not the good, it's not heaven or hell. It's, it's the bigger, just where souls go. If that mean, yes? So in King James, it's in the grave. So yeah. Sheol, is it like S-H-A-O-L? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, you said it, and I'm like, I don't have Sheol. Yeah, no, the King James says the grave. The grave. So it's just the realm of the domain of the dead is the basic picture. It's, it's not more detailed than that. We, we've got more information. We've got more detail. Um... In fact, I'd go so far as to say, there, for the best picture we have, heaven had a waiting room, hell has a waiting room. That um, You get that in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Because right, at the end of Revelation, death and Hades are poured into the lake of fire. Right? So there's a place of torment that isn't as bad as it's going to get. That's a preparatory place. Apparently, there was a likewise a place of paradise, Abraham's bosom is referred to. And according to Ephesians 4, when Jesus ascended, he took all those people, the, the gates to heaven are opened up now, and all those people in heaven's waiting room, for lack of a better term, go into, into, uh, into heaven with Jesus. He led a host of, captive, of captives and set men free. So, including the thief on the cross, precisely. But so that's even more detail, right? Um, and then we get into uh, the book of Revelation. We find this great new heavens and earth. We, we keep getting more information. So Sheol is simply looking at the, the place of death, which is one of the reasons why people that want to argue for infant salvation from David's comment, I cannot go to him, but he, he cannot come to me, but I will go to him, might mean that. But David may only th simply be thinking in that place, he can't come from the realm of the dead to me, but I too will go to the realm of the dead. It might just mean that. You, you get what I'm saying? Um, it may not be as strong of an argument for salvation as some would think, because at least here in Psalm 6, there's evidence that David can think in that sort of binary land of the living, land of the dead way.
Um, and there's truth to it. It, it. It's not a. It's not as accurate as other ways of viewing it, but it's not inaccurate, right? There, there is a, there is a place where bodiless spirits go, and it's not this world, right? Mike, microphone. Isn't there language that Christ goes to Sheol? Um, Around his death time. Are you talking about First Peter? Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Mitchell, you got any others? Yeah, let's go there, and then we'll be done. We're at time. Yeah. Um, so let's go to. Uh, let's just go to First Peter for time's sake. Maybe Ephesians five because he, he descended. Let's go to. Let's go to First um, Peter three. Verse 18, Christ also, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Is that what you're talking about? Do you think that might be what you're talking about? You're thinking of something um, else. That, so I know that there are some uh, religious sects that believe that Christ actually went to hell upon his death. Right. And it seemed to me, that, like from my my recollection, that I came across, you know, Christ going to Sheol, and and maybe that was where they drew that conclusion. No, but. I think the people that argue, I mean, some versions of the Apostles' Creed even have went to hell. I think it's this passage I get that from. If, if they're talking about Sheol, there might be other Messianic texts. I mean, look into it. Get back to me. In the New Testament, I think it's this in Ephesians. And Ephesians just talks about descending. It's not, as, it's not nearly as clear. This is the one. I think Jesus did go to hell's waiting room or hell, not to suffer, um, I, it says here he went and made a proclamation, Caruso. Um, he proclaimed something, and he went to the, this place of torment of spirits and proclaimed something. My guess, my best guess would be his victory. Uh, my the best guess would be um, having achieved victory on the cross, his victory to be total, not only does he have to achieve it, but all his enemies have to know he achieved it. Unless there be any denizens of hell laboring under the false belief that their side's winning he goes and proclaims his victory to them as well my guess i couldn't get dogmatic on that my guess would be something like it but certainly not going to hell to suffer and pay for sin or anything um certainly not that it's the heidelberg catechism heidelberg catechism sees you into hell i grew up with that ah okay no he says it's finished on the cross so um, he, he's not going and paying for sins in hell. If he, if he makes a trip there, it's as its Lord, not as its victim. So, whatever. Th- that's my guess. I can't be dogmatic on what he's doing. I know he's not going there to suffer. No. Um, and I know however long he's there, it's not for the entire three days, because he tells the thief, you will be with me today in paradise. So, so if he makes a trip there, it's much shorter than three days. 
So, I mean, it's one of those topics you don't have a ton of information on, so you can't get too dark. But I can tell you what it isn't. It isn't, okay, now he's going to go pay for sins in hell. No, no. Um, even, even before he dies on the cross, he's done bearing the wrath. In the language, it shifts from my God to Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. There's a, there's a sense in which, okay, I'm done and I can die now. I have borne your wrath. I have atoned for the sins of my people. Now I'm done and I'd like to be, get off this cross and be done. I commend my spirit into your hands. You know? so, so no, he is not going to hell suffering in hell at all. Whatever's going on, whatever he's proclaiming, I'm going to give you my best guess. Whatever he's proclaiming, he's not going as some victim suffering. He, he's going as the Lord of glory. Um, yes, Bob. Doesn't he proclaim uh, release to the captives? That's in one of the passages. That's that, the Ephesians passage you're talking about. Okay. Citing Psalms. Mitchell, citing Psalm what? We're at time. We'll talk about this. Goodbye. I don't want to. Well, no, because there's people need to go and we're five minutes after. It's chilly time. Chilly time. Ah! Okay. Thank you all. We can pick this up next week. Let's go eat some chili.